Welcome, bookcasers. Good to have you back. Just like last week, we have some great stories for you this week. And I think Kate's going to come along, isn't she? Yes, she absolutely is. This is Kate Gibson, co-host, daughter extraordinaire. This week, I'm really excited. Well, I get really excited about this week anyway, With that has nothing to do with books because it's Oscar week. And I don't know, even if I haven't seen any of the movies, and this year I've seen a scant few of them, I must admit, even if I haven't seen them, I just get such a kick out of, out of watching them. It's sort of become a tradition in our house. You guys sit in front of the television where you are. I sit in front of the television where I am, and we snark each other via text. We send each other snarky texts about what people are wearing and dumb speeches and and who dropped the ball and what the heck was that about. And um, and so I love this week. I love I love watching the Oscars. Um, it's always fun. I feel the same way, even though I don't know a lot of the movies and things have changed in terms of going to the theater with COVID. Anyway, the book this week is Oscar Wars. Michael Schulman, who is a writer for The New Yorker, has been a writer for The New Yorker about entertainment for a long time, and he covers the Oscars. And it's a delicious, delicious book. There's all kinds of stories, including uh, stories about the recent disasters at the Oscars, the Cinderella number, which I think was, I've forgotten, 1990-something or other. It was not Cinderella. No, no, well, no, it was no, Cinder- no. It was Snow White. And oh, Snow I don't White. know okay. why. Somehow that makes it worse. I don't know why. I'm not sure why, but it somehow She was makes playing it worse. Snow White and Rob Lowe was with her and it was just dreadful. And it lasted 11 minutes. And the Oscars that year, although they were kind of interesting, were declared a flop. And then, of course, we had the wrong movie that got Best Picture two years ago. And then last year, there was The Slap. And I yes. love I love Jimmy Kimmel's promo for the Oscars this year. He says, somebody says, well, we have to have a host who was unflappable and unslappable. Anyway, Michael covers all of this in the book, but he also goes way back to the origin of the Academy Awards because, well, it, it was just, it's as he'll tell you, it was started for much different reasons than we look at it now. Yeah. I mean, it really was founded almost to be like a, a NATO for Hollywood and producers founded it because they wanted sort of a guild to end all guilds that would sort of break up all the union negotiations. And then it sort of became this awards organization. And I love this book. This book is so much fun. There's so many terrific stories in there. They're really juicy. You know, juicy is such a cliche, but they are the really juicy, you know, the made up fights, the honest to gosh, real fights the wardrobe disasters, the snarky comments. I just, I love the whole thing. It's so great. It is terrific. It's a, it's a fun, it's a, it's a fun, I hate fun as an adjective. (laughs) It's an enjoyable uh, book to read. And so we asked Michael to tell all the stories. We were shameless. Tell us the stories. Basically, basically. Give us the good stuff. Yeah. And he did. So here's our conversation with Michael Schulman. Michael Shulman, it is a pleasure to have you in the bookcase. Your new book, Oscar Wars, I couldn't put it down. I read it, I think, cover to cover in two days. It seems like we're always talking about whether or not the Oscars are safe, whether they will remain relevant. And it seems really interesting to me that we're still having that discussion after two of the bigger Oscar scandals in Oscar history, the Best Picture scandal and Will Smith walking up and hitting Chris Rock across the face last year. Will the Oscars ever be safe? 
That's a good question. I mean, looking at all, you know, this book covers many, many decades of history, and there have been many moments in Oscar history when the Oscars felt like they could just disappear. I mean, in the 30s, they were being attacked by the talent guilds like SAG, and the Academy almost died. You know, they almost died again of lack of funds in the 40s and 50s. In the late 60s, they felt totally irrelevant because of the generation gap. And, you know, one thing that I really learned looking at all this history is that Hollywood is very cyclical. Often, when the movies feel sort of out of touch with the public, like they were in the 60s, you know, when they didn't know how to, Hollywood didn't know how to talk to the rising generation of baby boomers. And what came out of that was this incredible movement of 70s cinema and the new Hollywood. So I feel like we're in kind of a moment like that, where the movies are very... Mm -hmm. You know, something's really off with the movie industry right now. You have these huge franchises, you know, that the only things that people are going out to see in the theaters are like Marvel movies, Avatar, Top Gun, that kind of thing. And then all these little movies that got nominated for Oscars like Tar and Triangle of Sadness, Women Talking, they really don't make a lot of money and people are content to watch that kind of thing on, on streaming. And what we're missing more and more is the mid-budget movie, the stuff in the middle that mm -hmm. used to be much more popular. Like if you think of the Oscars in the 90s, you had, you know, Forrest Gump and The English Patient and, you know, Goodwill Hunting, the movies that were very much at the center of American popular culture. And that kind of thing has sort of migrated to television now. People get that kind of thing from Succession or The White Lotus. And so it's mm -hmm. created a bit of a problem for the Oscars because every year the list now comes out and people are scratching their heads because they haven't heard of a lot of these movies. That's not the Oscars doing. That is how movies are right now. And I think the question of relevance for the Oscars is a bigger question than the Academy Awards. I think it's a question about the relevance of movies and movie going in our lives. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your process, because that'll also allow us, I think, a little bit to talk about the history. Because as you say in the introduction, you could have written in 1954 this, in 1955 this, in 1956 this, but you don't. And it must have been intimidating as a writer to look at this entire history. How did you pick the goalposts, the benchmarks that you wanted to hit in telling this story. Right. I mean, that was really the concept for the book. These Oscar books exist that are basically yearbooks, you know, encyclopedias that cover every year, who won, who lost, what records were set. A lot of those books are sort of pre-internet and we can now look up who won on Wikipedia. So what I really wanted to do, you know, I work at The New Yorker and I'm trained in, in narrative storytelling and kind of long form journalism. And I really wanted to immerse the reader in just about a dozen years. So I wanted about a dozen chapters that just took one year or one category or one conflict and dove really deep into each one. And the fun part was choosing which one. So I had a few which ones to focus on. So I had a, a couple criteria as I looked through all nine and a half decades of history. One is that I wanted them to be spread out so that I wouldn't have, you know, five chapters set in the 70s. A lot of crazy things happened at the Oscars in the 70s, so I was tempted. <laughs> um, another was that I, I wanted to choose movies and people who still have resonance today, so I didn't want to be too obscure. And then the last and most important one was that I wanted to look for years that told some larger story about the culture changing or Hollywood changing. And so, for example, I always knew I wanted to write about the best picture race of 1976 because it's an incredible lineup. The five movies were, and one of these is not like the others, One Flew Over the Cuckoo, yeah, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Nashville, Barry Lyndon, Dog Day Afternoon, 
and Jaws. So it's like, what's happening there? You have four <laughs> kind of anti-authoritarian New Hollywood masterpieces, and then the first modern summer blockbuster by this 20-something-year-old kid named Spielberg. And the story that those five movies tell is about kind of the new Hollywood of the 70s changing into the blockbuster culture of the 80s. And on Oscar night, One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest famously won all of the top prizes. Let me go back to the beginning of the Oscars. You raised the question of why they came to exist in the first place. One possibility was to create harmony within the industry, that the industry was so bifurcated. And secondly, to try to squash the unions. I never thought of either one of those. Tell me about those. Right. So the Academy was created in 1927, and it really had nothing to do with awards. Awards were kind of an afterthought. They were on a long list of ideas that the founding members had. These were 36 very influential people in, in silent era Hollywood. And their rhetoric at the time, all their publications was very utopian. They wanted to be the League of Nations for Hollywood and bring harmony. Yes, they wanted to resolve disputes between, you know, actors and producers or writers and whoever. And that's all great. But the subtext of that was that Hollywood was not a union town. And there were some signs that that might change, which of course was a big problem for people like Louis B. Mayer, who ran MGM and basically invented the Academy. You know, they'd crafts people were unionized, but not the actors or writers or directors. That wouldn't happen until the 30s. And so what the Academy did was sort of to preempt you know, a labor union from forming, they would mediate disputes if someone had a, you know, if, if there was someone who had a complaint about, you know, a firing or a salary disagreement, the academy would mediate it. And they would also help negotiate contracts. So they were hated by the rank and file of Hollywood because the academy was viewed as this company union that was the producer's way of manipulating everybody and consolidating power. And they weren't wrong about that. But it was like the Academy for the first decade was really enemy number one in town. And it wasn't until Frank Capra became the president of the Academy, he realized the only way that this organization could survive was to shed all of those labor and economic responsibilities. And the only thing they kept really was the Academy Awards, which was the only thing they did that everyone liked. Let me go back to the statuette itself. How was it created? And where did the name Oscar come from? Because the story I always thought was true about the way it was named you debunk. So the statuette was there from the start in the 20s. Originally, the Academy got someone to draw an insignia for them, which was this crusading knight holding a sword. They turned that into a statue, a statuette, once they started doing the awards in 1929. So it was made at, you know, a bronze foundry and designed by a local artist. It's this knight standing on a reel of film. But the name Oscar did not take hold until the 30s. And there are many different stories about why it's called the Oscar. I don't think any of them is completely, you know, like we'll never really know for sure. In one of her memoirs, Betty Davis says that she came up with the name because when she won, she looked at it from behind and it's the statuette's backside reminded her of her husband's and his middle name was Oscar. So it has been Oscar ever since. I mean, that is complete 
phooey because you can look in newspaper articles two years before that, people were calling it the Oscar. But you quote a great line from Francis Marion, who says, The little gold watch statuette was thought by skeptics and art lovers a bit on the amateurish side. Still, I saw it as a perfect symbol of the picture business, a powerful athletic body clutching a gleaming sword with half of his head, the part which held its brains, sliced off. I love that I get to quote that line in this show. I love that. I love that. I I love that. She has some great zingers. I'm so disappointed to find out that it really wasn't named after Betty Davis's husband's butt. When I want to go back to the stories you chose, because I also thought the great stories that you told about de Havilland and Fontaine did a great job of setting up. In some ways, the way that the movie industry has always pictured women, Mm. pitting them against each other, telling those great stories of rivalry. Yeah. I mean, so one chapter, so when I was looking at the 1940s and trying to choose a 1940s chapter to do, I was looking through all every year and realized that in 1942, three things happened that were very dramatic. One was that Citizen Kane lost mostly everything and only won for the screenplay. And this was a legendary Oscar mistake. Secondly, the awards were two and a half months after Pearl Harbor. And so everyone was, of course, in the country, in the world, was, of course, adjusting to this new reality. But the Oscars also had to adjust to the fact that America was at war. And there's also a great subplot about Betty Davis being the president of the Academy at the time and quitting in a blaze of glory. (laughs) And then thirdly, two sisters who hated each other, Olivia de Havilland and Joan Fontaine, were nominated against each other for Best Actress. And one of them won. And I just loved the juiciness of that and thought this chapter, if I could weave all those stories together, it just it's it's just so it's so delicious. And it tells you about the era, about the the, the, a a real change in Hollywood as it started to produce more and more and more war movies. But also it had this kind of gossipy edge to it. And, you know, it's true what you say that the best actress race is always this opportunity for us to imagine rivalries between women, which the press loves to do and the public loves to do. In the case of Joan and Olivia, they weren't making it up. They actually had this coldness toward each other from um, practically from birth, and it lasted till the end of their lives. Let me ask a difficult question about the Oscars. Harvey Weinstein uh, is now universally hated for what he did and how he acted, but he did have an s- extraordinary effect on the Oscars themselves. Did he ruin the Oscars in some way in the way that he hmm. turned them into a, uh, to a campaign? Yeah. I mean, this is what Harvey Weinstein used to be notorious for. Now it's rightly something else. But back in the 90s, when he and his brother were running Miramax, he pioneered this way of campaigning for the Academy Awards that no one had really ever done to this extent. It was just, it was relentless. It was aggressive. He really left no stone unturned. So he would have staff members call Academy members to ask them over and over again, did you see the movie? Did you see the movie? He would find little pockets of Academy voters. If there were like two Academy voters living in Utah or something, he'd find them and set up a screening for them of, you know, whatever, the English patient. And then he would also negative campaign and bully people and really sort of unsavory stuff. And even his own staff didn't know what he was doing all the time, which you know carries over to the accusations as well. I think in a way it did ruin something. I mean, it, you know, campaigning had existed and there was always 
machinations behind the scenes. Even in, back in the old studio era, you know, studios would organize their employees, you know, for, for this or that movie. So it's never been a pure process. But I think the Harvey Weinstein campaign playbook really caught on because once all the Hollywood studios realized that he was doing it, and particularly once Shakespeare in Love won against Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan in 1999, all of the other studios realized, okay, if he's doing this, we're going to do it. So let me go to to three critical moments in Oscar land. Well, two, really. Let me go to the most recent ones. The great mix-up when the wrong picture was awarded best picture, and then the slap heard round the world. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Tell me the story of how and why La La Land was given the Oscar as best picture when it really wasn't. So this was kind of the perfect storm of errors. It had to happen in the exact wrong way for it to Everything had to go exactly wrong for something like this to happen. It was totally unprecedented. And really at the heart of the problem was that people did not know much about this at the time, which is why it was so confusing. But the only people who know the winners before they're announced are the two accountants from PricewaterhouseCoopers who hand out the envelopes from the wings. And there's one on each side of the stage. And each accountant has a complete set of envelopes, which means that there are duplicates. So if a presenter comes out from stage left, that means the accountant from stage right has the same envelope. But what they're supposed to do is then put the duplicate in their briefcase and move on to the next one. What happened that night is that one of the accountants did not do that. So Emma Stone won Best Actress for La La Land. That envelope came from one side of the stage. On the other stage, there was a second envelope that said Emma Stone, La La Land. But that accountant had two envelopes left, that and Best Picture. And he was showing people how to open the envelope. There was a new thing with tape and it was a little cumbersome. So in his effort to explain to Warren Beatty, who was presenting, how to open the thing right, he gave Warren Beatty the duplicate Emma Stone envelope and then put the best picture envelope in his briefcase. So Warren Beatty gets out there, opens it up. He's supposed to be announcing best picture, but he sees something that says Emma Stone La La Land. It just did not make any sense. And you can see the confusion on his face. So he shows it to his co-presenter, Faye Dunaway, who just looks at it, sees the words La La Land and says La La Land. And that is really when all hell broke loose. That's how it happened. I have to say what really surprised me about the way you told the story was my heart really went out to Warren Beatty. Mm. I mean, because there was so much misconception about, well, they're old and they're doddering and whatever. And here he is going, I'm going to hold on to this envelope. Nobody is taking it from me because this has nothing to do with the fact that I am old. And I just, I don't know. I ended up, that that ended up being the hero for me in this story was, was this yeah. person I felt so terribly for. He was right. There are still people who think that, oh, Warren Beatty read the wrong name. He, he didn't. He didn't read any name. He just he didn't know what to do because it was an unprecedented situation where he was staring at something that just did not compute. And then the slap. You're an eyewitness account of the slap. So, I mean, you were actually <laughs> there when, as a New York writer put it, the Fresh Prince slapped Pookie. So, so walk me through <laughs> what happened when, when you were there. <laughs> so I was up in the cheap seats in the second balcony somewhere, and I could sort of see what was happening, but I'm very nearsighted. So I couldn't really see what had happened when the slap actually happened. It just looked like two famous blobs on stage. But what I could hear, even from up there, I could hear Will Smith scream afterward, 
keep my wife's name out your mouth. I so clearly remember thinking, I don't think you can say that word on network television. (laughs) And also that sounded really angry. This is not a bit, but it was so everyone was so confused about what had happened. But then people at home could see it on their screens, but they couldn't hear because Will Smith was bleeped out. So I immediately got 20 texts from people watching saying, what happened? What happened? You're there. What's going on? And I didn't really know, but I was there to cover the awards for the New Yorker. And I immediately knew, okay, I have to, something is really happening. I have to get up out of my seat and leave and get into, put on my reporter hat and go and talk to people in the lobby and try to figure out what is happening and try to capture this moment of chaos. One of the things we haven't talked about is how late the Oscars were to addressing the racial issues of America. Mm. And, mm-hmm. and you use the title in your chapter, Tokens, to talk about the Hattie McDaniel, who won years ago, who probably could be considered a token, and then Halle Berry and Denzel Washington winning in the same year. Do you think there's still tokens, and do you think the Academy yet has gotten to the point where it has recognized the importance of other races and also women? I titled that chapter, so that chapter braids the stories of these three black actors who were real first, who were actual first in their, in their category. Hattie McDaniel for Gone with the Wind, Sidney Poitier, who won Best Actor for Lilies of the Field, and then Halle Berry, who was the first black woman to win Best Actress in 2002. Now notice those are decades and decades apart from each other. And when you look at their stories, there were some real glaring similarities among all three of them. You know, for each of them, this was hailed as a historic win that sort of projected progress and acceptance for the industry. But for that person, it was for the person who won, it was a very isolating experience. They faced backlash. They suddenly were representing everyone and pleasing no one. They all three of them had sort of career troubles after they won that Oscar because they were kind of stuck. And the reason I decided to call that chapter tokens was not just because each of those three people represented a kind of tokenism for Hollywood, but also because there's a double meaning. You know, the Academy Award was also a token that they got back. And in a way, it's a token that's supposed to symbolize progress, but in a way wound up symbolizing false promise. For each of them. And then they had to wait. Decades would go by before the next person came along. So I think that's still going on. It's still a huge conversation. You know, this year, there are uh, quite a lot of Asian nominees like Michelle Yeoh and Kehoi Kwan from Everything Ever All at Once and Hong Chao for The Whale. Um, you know, it's a great. So in certain, in certain ways, we're still breaking ground, but in others not. There are no female directors nominated this year in Best Directing. There are no Black actresses nominated for Best Actress. And there hasn't been a, a woman of color who's won Best Actress since Halle Berry 21 years ago. So there's a really uh, devastating quote from Halle Berry in many years after she, about 15 years after she won that Oscar, she talked about how in her speech, she famously said, you know, tonight a door has been opened for more women of color to come through this door. And and it hadn't happened for anyone else after a decade and a half. She said, it's heartbreaking to think that a door maybe wasn't opened. And I thought that moment was, I said, I said my speech that this is bigger than me, but now I'm thinking maybe it wasn't bigger than me. Maybe it was just me and it didn't level the playing field. So I think the Oscars are still struggling with that. And it's a bumpy road. Has the Academy ever done anything in its history that's brave? 
Oh, that's an interesting question because so much of the history that I found going through decades and decades of this book is the Academy often trying to play it safe and only really changing or moving forward when absolutely forced to, you know, (laughs) I mean, you know, even even in the, the Gregory Peck years in the 60s, I think actually Gregory Peck is a good example because he was the president of the Academy in the late 60s. He was revered and loved as the man who played Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird. But he was obviously on one side of the, this generation gap. And he realized that the Academy had to reach out to this new Hollywood that was emerging or else it would be totally irrelevant. And so what he did was actively, proactively reach out. In fact, I found in the Academy Library this wonderful correspondence between him and the young Candace Bergen, who is a 22-year-old starlet and kind of it girl at the time. And she offered to recruit her hip young friends like Dennis Hopper and Dustin Hoffman and Peter Fonda, people like that, to get them interested in the Academy because she told him that the Academy was full of antiquities gumming up the works. Hmm. And Gregory Peck was really interested in that and really saw that the Academy had to move past people his age and bring in the new generation. I mean, part of what he also did was demote people who hadn't worked for seven years to non-voting status. And so there were people who had been working in the 30s on Abbott and Costello movies who hadn't, they weren't really relevant in the industry. And he told them, I'm sorry, you know, you can't vote anymore. And what was wonderful is that his papers at the Academy Library have all these angry letters that people wrote back, which he lovingly (laughs) preserved. And, you know, this is not to say out with the old and with the new all the time, but I think he did have this sort of foresight and it wasn't necessarily to his benefit because he was an aging star and he wasn't really in his the prime of his career anymore. But he saw that the Academy Awards had to keep evolving. You talked about the movie industry being cyclical. And in fact, you have this great line towards the end of the book says, art would poke the eye out of commerce. Commerce reasserts itself. Taste, politics, and power realign. And what I'm wondering is, it sounds to me like there's always been a tug of war between, as you talked about earlier, the art house versus the blockbuster. Mm -hmm. And it feels like the Academy has flirted several times with making two Best Picture Awards. How come they haven't? It's so interesting. That is still, that is a perpetual thing with the Oscars. In fact, the very first Oscars was the only year that there were two top prizes. One called Outstanding Picture, which was won by Wings, this big, epic World War I movie. And the other was called Best Unique and Artistic Picture, Hmm. which was won by Sunrise, which Hmm. was kind of a small, tense psychodrama. So even then, there was this tension between Do we reward spectacle and production value and the sort of craft of the bigness of the craft or the sort of small dramatic art film? But after that year, it was merged into one prize. And I think you see that tension across the eras. I mean, one year that comes to mind is 1953 when The Greatest Show on Earth won Best Picture. This was the huge Cecil B. DeMille circus spectacular about Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey Circus. And it, it, it's remembered as one of the worst Best Picture winners. But it had that size, that scope, that bigness. And it won over High Noon, which I think is like an example of a perfect movie. But it's again, a sort of, you know, a very disciplined contained movie, I think you see this going all the way up to this very year when if you look at Mm. the 10 Best Picture nominees, you have Avatar, The Way of Water, you have Top Gun Maverick, these big movies, even Everything Everywhere All at Once, which is 
you know, kind of indie movie that broke through, but it's a big spectacle. And then you have Tar and you have women talking. You have these sort of small chamber movies that are very tight and controlled. And I think the Academy voters are always kind of conflicted about what to reward. Do we reward the size and the scope or do we reward these smaller movies? Well, but I wonder about that because you talked about the relevance of the Oscars and things have changed so much. As you say, things are cyclical. But we're now in a situation where more people are watching movies, I guess, on their home television screens through streaming than they are in theaters. And I wonder if that, to come back to Kate's original question, if that doesn't in some ways undercut the relevance of the award. What do you think? It just might. It just might. I think we're in a real crisis moment where people are asking themselves, what is a movie? Movies and television are kind of colliding into being the same thing. I mean, if you have a movie that comes out on, you know, Paramount Plus or uh, HBO Max or something, and no, very, very few people see it in a movie theater. Is that a TV movie now? And conversely, these Marvel movies, there's one every three months. People go, they're a serial story that never ends. Isn't that a soap opera? Isn't that a TV show at some point? And then the Marvel universe kind of spills over into a Disney Plus series. So I think, you know, it's interesting to see that at certain points in movie history, the technology really shakes things up, whether it's the talkies or in the 50s when television first came along and it was really viewed as this mortal threat to movies. And that's why we saw so many big cinemascope spectaculars like The Greatest Show on Earth in the 50s to get people to go out to movies and see movies as an event. And, you know, the Oscars had to decide whether to be on television. And they resisted at first because they thought, well, how how, sh- how could the movie award be on television? That's like going into enemy territory. They eventually did it because they needed the money to keep the Academy running. But yeah, I think we're in a similar moment where a lot about the industry is uncertain. And part of me wonders whether this book is the history of something that is in some sense over, which is the, you know, the first century of the Academy Awards. Mm. Will they be the same? I, I have no idea. I thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.
Rapid fire for Michael Shulman. Michael, how often do you go to the movies? Oh, uh, about twice a month. Writer that made you want to be a journalist. Oh, God. It's like the first thing that came to mind was Joan Didion, but that's such a cliche. <laughs> no, I like it. You know, when I, I was- like it. I'll, I'll, give it, I'll give it another answer. When Before I started working for The New Yorker, I read this uh, beautiful piece by Ted Friend called Jumpers, I think, which is about everyone who had jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. And it's, it's a gorgeous classic piece of New Yorker journalism. And that was one piece that really inspired me. Your favorite movie of all time? I think it is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Hmm. How come? I just love it. I think it's electric and I love 70s movies. And that is just one that, you know, always just gets under my skin and is thrilling to watch. Fabulous acting. Jack Nicholson, Louise Fletcher as Nurse Ratchet. Oh, but it's a tie between that and All About Eve, which is just oh. pure, delicious bitchery. And uh, I, I am down to watch it pretty much any moment of any day. <laughs> that is my favorite movie of all time. Every time I watch it, I hear something different. The last time I watched it, I heard Margot, you made an unbelievable Peter Pan. You must remember to play it again sometime. Like I hear a different line every single time I watch that movie. Okay. It's the best. Sorry. <laughs> it's the best. Um, best Oscar host of all time. Billy Crystal. When I was a kid, I used to watch the medleys, you know, in the early 90s oh, yeah. when he opened the show with those great medleys of the Best Picture nominees. But I was too young to have seen any of the nominees, like Silence of the Lambs and The Crying Game. I, I didn't see any of the movies, but I still thought they were absolutely hilarious. Movie that you think was the most deserving of an Oscar that didn't get one as Best Picture? Brokeback Mountain. Hmm. Oh, but going back in history, did you know, uh, again, this year of that The Greatest Show on Earth won, not only did it beat... High Noon, but Singing in the Rain wasn't even nominated. Whoa. Ooh. I didn't, yeah. Ooh. I didn't know that. And, and Brokeback Ooh. Mountain, you say you- Was beaten by Crash. Yeah. Oh. You picked that because the Oscars didn't have the guts to do it? I think that Brokeback Mountain, I think, really uh, faced some, some homophobia at the time. While Crash is about how high-minded everyone in Los Angeles is about racism. Mm. So it was a little bit of a pat themselves on the back moment for the industry. A revered movie that everybody loved that you saw that you didn't like. The Shape of Water, which won Best Picture several years ago about a woman who has an affair with like a fish mutant. Uh, I just found it really uh, off-putting and kind of a movie about movie cliches, sort of a tribute to kind of sci-fi horror tropes. And it just didn't do anything for me. I think when they opened that envelope and read it, it may have been the one and only time I got a WTF text from my mother. <laughs> um, she doesn't um, um, generally do that. Um, author you will read simply because they wrote it. Sam Wasson is an author who writes about Hollywood history a lot, who I absolutely love. I read all of his books. He just had a kind of mammoth book come out that he co-authored called Hollywood, the Oral History. It's even longer than mine and covers absolutely everything. But my favorite book of his is called Fifth Avenue 5 AM, which is about the making of Breakfast at Tiffany's. It's an absolutely delicious book. He's written biographies of Fosse and a book about the making of Chinatown. Just one of those writers who really has so much charm and finds the magic of Hollywood history wherever he looks. A movie that you will see simply because someone directed it. Pedro Almodovar. Mm. Oh, I do like Amadeovar. Mm. Love him. One thing that would surprise our audience about Meryl Streep. She was a cheerleader in high school. 
Okay, we stole this question from Stephen Colbert, but we find it very illustrative. In five words, what do you want the rest of your life to be? Mm, okay, um, five words. Finding the fun in life. Mm. Ooh, I love that. That's very good. That's very good. The Walt Disney Company is a parent company of ABC, ABC News, and Disney+. And as a reminder, the Oscars are going to be on ABC this Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Michael Schulman, I love some of the old stuff as well as the new stuff, Kate. The fact that two sisters, Vivian Lee and Joan Fontaine, could not speak for 50 years because they were so jealous of one another. I hope you're talking to your sister, by the way. I was about to say, it makes you wonder what would happen if Jessica and I both become actresses, doesn't it? <laughs> um, uh, it's, but it's exemplar of the incredible stories. And I, I want to make a quick plug, by the way, for the old stuff, because I am a huge fan of All About Eve. All About Eve is my all-time favorite movie. And he writes extensively about that best actress race that year. And he writes extensively about the movie. And if you haven't seen it, young people, I'm speaking to you. If you haven't seen it, it's some of the best, most amazing dialogue. You'll fall in love with Betty Davis. You gotta see this movie. My drama teacher showed it to me when I was in high school. He loved it. He made me love it. I have a copy of the script. It's awesome. Indeed. So, Katie, we've, you know, just like the Oscars, we've only got a few minutes here to talk. I hope the orchestra doesn't cut us off. No. Because um, I just want to take a moment to say thank you to our <laughs> fans, to the listeners, to my husband, to um, my mother. I can leave the so Case with Kate and Charlie Gibson is a production of ABC Audio. It's produced by David Canada in conjunction with Surecam Productions. Brenda Salinas Baker is our senior producer, and Laura Mayer is our executive producer. We give special thanks to Josh Cohen, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Chertavian. This uh, longtime marketing executive named Terry Press, I, I asked her once, um, all of this fighting and scrambling and uh, uh, you know campaigning for Oscars, what is it all for? And she said, ego and bragging rights. It's a town built on a rock-solid foundation of insecurity. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.